0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilan. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host this afternoon. We're here to um, mark the publication of uh, a new book by Clark Neely of the Institute for Justice, Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. For those of you in the audience, of course, it's available for sale outside, and you can have Clark sign it for you. For those of us who are watching on simulcast, uh, you can order the book uh, from Amazon or probably get it right from the Institute for Justice. In any event, um, we're going to be discussing the thesis uh, of this book, which is that the courts uh, have been derelict in their duty to. Secure our rights and to limit the government the federal government in particular To its enumerated powers at least since the New Deal uh, But uh, in some cases before that as well um, let me just lay a brief uh, foundation before our uh, first speaker gets up here of this issue um, One could say that the issues were joined um uh, after the New Deal uh, essentially eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers from the Constitution and then bifurcated the Bill of Rights, giving us a bifurcated theory of judicial review in 1938, after which the uh, court, the Supreme Court in particular, was essentially deferential to the political branches and then uh, to the states as well. Uh, until about the mid to late 50s, Uh, when the Warren and Burger courts became very active in finding rights, uh, some of which were nowhere to be found even among our unenumerated rights, which created a backlash uh, among conservatives. And so you had two schools of thought emerge, namely um, liberals uh, who, uh, along with conservatives, made their peace with the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers but on the right side differed radically, whereas the uh, conservatives called on the court to enforce only those rights that were fairly expressly in the Constitution. The uh, liberals uh, called upon the court to enforce what they saw as uh, uh, a set of evolving social values, at least as they saw the values, and have the courts uh, find those in the Constitution. Um, that led to a third school of thought coming along back in the mid to late 70s, uh, people like Bernie Segan, Richard Epstein, myself, um, calling upon the court to, uh, uh, to ignore both of those schools, which were both wrong, and to start enforcing the Constitution as Madison would have it enforced. Uh, that is to say, uh, holding the federal government to its enumerated powers, holding the state governments to a sense of the Police power that was uh, uh, narrower than uh, had been found after the New Deal Revolution, and then enforcing both enumerated and unenumerated rights. And we developed these theories over the 80s. The Cato Institute, for example, had a conference uh, in 1984 on economic liberties and the judiciary, and it was focusing on the fact that economic liberties were now second class rights. Um, Then in the Center for Constitutional Studies, uh, which I founded in 1989, focused on this issue especially, and developed the theory of the matter uh, to some extent. Well, two years later, the Institute for Justice was founded by, um, co-founded by uh, Chip Meller, who's the president of the Institute, and he was later joined by Clark Neely and the merry band of litigators, as they're called, and what they have done is uh, they at IJ have uh, brought the theory down to practice and have litigated a wide number of cases um, that involve uh, everything from licensure for hair braiders to florists to um, interior designers and taxicab drivers and uh, uh, any number of other areas, property rights areas and economic liberties, and have really change the terms of the debate in this country by virtue of that real world action. And so that is what this book is designed to do, bring the theory to practice and show how in countless cases they have encouraged the court to be uh, more engaged, as Clark has put it, he heads up their center for a judicial engagement, to be more engaged rather than deferential to the political branches. And so, without further ado, I'm going to turn to Clark and ask him to discuss the book, and then I'm going to introduce Ed Whalen, who's going to offer some critical remarks about this approach, even though, as we were discussing before we came on, he himself agrees with much of what has been done. But um, let me then introduce Clark. He is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. Uh, He joined the IJ in 2000. He litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, First Amendment, and other constitutional cases in both federal and state law. Uh, He has uh, uh, helped to create the Institute's Center for Judicial Engagement. Uh, He is co-counsel for plaintiffs. Uh, in uh, he was co-counsel for plaintiffs in uh, Heller v. Uh, or District of Columbia v. Heller. That was the case that finally said that the Second Amendment does have teeth; it uh, upholds the individual right to keep and bear arms. Uh, before joining uh, IJ, he spent four years as a litigator uh, at the Dallas-based firm of Thompson and, Deni- and Knight. Um, he is a graduate of the University of Texas, both the college and the law school. Uh, where he was chief articles editor for the Texas Law Review, after which he clerked for Judge Royce Lamberth, uh, a good friend of the Cato Institute uh, and the Institute for Justice. Uh, And uh, so with with that, would you please welcome Clark Neely.
1: Thank you, Roger. It's... uh... A real pleasure to be here today. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Um, I should start by by thanking some people. Um, As you learn when you write a book, uh, as the president might say, you didn't write that. Uh, (laughs) I had a lot of help along the way, and I want to single out a a few people in particular. I want to start with Roger, actually. Um, And I want to single him out for one thing. This is a pamphlet that Roger wrote some time ago called The Purpose and Limits of Government. I keep this handy, Roger, and it's well highlighted, as you can see, and uh, I think if we bring out another edition of the book, this really ought to be a a supplement or a pocket part, because all you really need, if you only have uh, 20 minutes to understand American government constitutional law, you'll get it from this pamphlet, so.
0: This will do it,
1: too. uh, That will do also, although um, apparently this is more inscrutable to some people (laughs) in certain branches than than perhaps your pamphlet is. So. I also want to thank Chip Meller at the Institute for Justice, the president and co-founder, who had the idea for this book. And as I say in the acknowledgments, applied just the right mixture of encouragement and boot leather to make sure that it got done on time. Uh, Also, my lovely wife, Nikki, who's in the audience. Um, I was absent for a significant period of the last year of our marriage, so um, nice to be back. My research assistant, Laura Lieberman, who's in the audience, who um, provided just tremendous um, assistance for the book. And also Ed. Uh, Ed provides an intellectual environment in which um, you know you better not drop the ball, and you better have your arguments uh, wired very tight. And i like to think that I did. We'll find out uh, whether Ed has discovered some holes in the argument later. But it's a really, I appreciate you coming um, and, and participating uh, in the event. So. This book, basically, uh, the thesis of this book is something that um, formed in my mind, and really it didn't form, it sort of um, invaded my mind after 13 years of litigating constitutional cases and realizing after a while that we have a constitution that provides for about this much government, but we have this much government, and you can't help but wonder, well, how did this happen? I mean, we had a constitution that the framers assured Uh, The country, before it was ratified, that would create a a federal government of of few and defined powers. Uh, And there are all these limits in the Constitution, some of which we'll talk about today. And every time we turn around, it seems that these limits are just being ignored. Uh, We have a legislature that, that, that turns over legislative power to the other branches and allows agencies to write not just rules but actual laws. Um, we have a federal government that seems to acknowledge no limits whatsoever, enumerated or otherwise, on its power, uh, and a judiciary that has, as Randy Barnett likes to point out in some of his work, really made Swiss cheese of the Constitution and removed large chunks of it that were there for the specific purpose of restraining government. And so the book is an attempt to not only explain how I, it seems to me that this happened, uh, but also to illustrate the consequences of what I call an epidemic of fake judging. And that really is what's going on. From a litigator's standpoint, as someone who goes into court on a regular basis to litigate constitutional cases, the message I have for those of you who have not been in that environment is the very principle of constitutionally limited government is in peril as a result of an epidemic of make-believe judging. Of judges who basically start out in most, many if not most constitutional cases with the end point already in mind, which is that the government will be permitted to do whatever it's trying to do, and then simply reverse engineer a decision from there and rationalize some way in which the Constitution authorizes the government to do whatever it's doing. And I'd like to give you a few examples of that uh, by way of, of sort of launching into the talk. The Constitution limits government in two particularly important ways. The federal government is limited, or at least was supposed to be limited, by the doctrine of enumerated powers. The idea was that if we only give some powers to the federal government, then we don't really have to worry too much about which rights we reserve, because the federal government can't do more than we've authorized it to do. The image I use in the book is, if you put yourself inside of a shark cage, then you only have a few inches to move around. But if you put the shark in the cage, then the rest of the ocean is yours. And that's, that's the vision. That's the idea of, of government that the, the framers had for how to restrict the federal government. The other important limitation, uh, and there are many, but the other really major important limitation on government power in the Constitution is the 14th Amendment which was ratified in 1868 after a disastrous national experiment with what sometimes people call states' rights, or the idea that there are no significant constitutional restraints on the power of state governments. Uh, I won't have to, I'm sure I don't have to enumerate for this crowd all of the many ways in which this was a disaster, um, starting with slavery, censorship of abolitionist speech, the list goes on and on and on. And that's why we have a 14th Amendment to correct the disastrous belief uh, that that unfortunately the founders had and that persisted for more than 100 years, that basically we could trust the states not to violate individual rights and it was not necessary for there to be any constitutional or at least no uh, federal constitutional restrictions on the states. So the examples that I'm going to give will deal with uh, both of these issues. I'm sure all of you will remember June 28, 2012, a day which shall live in constitutional infamy. That is, of course, the day uh, which the Supreme Court handed down the Obamacare decision and said that essentially nationalizing about one-sixth of the economy was perfectly consistent with the doctrine of enumerated federal powers that I described uh, a moment ago. Uh, some people saw in the NFIB v. Sibelius opinion, a.k.a. Obamacare, uh, silver lining because, as you may recall, the federal government was not allowed to micromanage our healthcare decisions on the basis of its usual go to power, the Commerce Clause. Uh, Five justices said that was, uh, uh, even for them, that was too much of a stretch, and so uh, Chief Justice Roberts essentially rewrote portions of of the Affordable Care Act to transform the individual mandate to purchase insurance into an option that you could exercise or not as you see fit, and you would just pay slightly more in taxes if you chose not to exercise this totally voluntary option. Now, never mind the fact that the law actually refers to the individual mandate as a penalty some 18 times, and even the Chief Justice... Acknowledge that it was more naturally read as a mandate than an option. When you're dealing with make-believe judging, the question is not um, what is the correct constitutional result. The question is, can I rationalize my way backwards from a bend over backwards and let the government do what it wants uh, in this case? And let me just say, if you put enough creative people in a room together from all three branches they will usually come up with a way to rationalize whatever the government is doing and hence the epidemic uh, of runaway government and make believe judging in this country now we were all assured right that 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 one of the great things or one of the things we should be happy about with the NFIB decision was that the supreme court had tightened up Commerce Clause jurisprudence. Well, let me tell you a little story about the message that at least one federal circuit court got in the wake of that. Um, This is six months after the Obamacare decision came down, December of 2012. The 11th Circuit handed down a decision in which they discuss the Obamacare decision, the supposedly tightened up federalism. And here's what what, what was the issue in this case. Um, There is a museum in Key West, Florida, called the Hemingway Home and Museum. Uh, It is actually the house where Hemingway did a lot of his writing, uh, and it's now a museum. And it's a kind of a funky museum. It's in Key West, which is a very funky place. And so um, there's a lot of uh, greenery outside, and things are pretty informal. And one of things you'll notice if you go there, as my wife and I did back in February, is there's a bunch of cats running around. Well, these cats are the descendants of a six-toed cat that was supposedly given to Hemingway by a sea captain. Uh, called, the cat, cat was called Snowball, and one of the interesting things about Snowball was that he had six toes. He was a polydactyl cat. So there's all these descendants of Snowball running around the museum. Well, somewhere along the way, a volunteer at the museum got disgruntled with the museum and decided that she wanted to get the museum in trouble. And the way she was going to do it was she was going to point out that, in her view, the cats were not being properly taken care of because they had no shelter to sleep in at night. Now, who do you go to when you want to get the Hemingway Museum in Key West, Florida, in trouble for not taking care of its cats properly? You might think uh, the uh, local animal control board, possibly the county health department. No, no, no. Be more ambitious. Put your mind to work. You go straight to the US Department of Agriculture if you're really serious about getting this museum in trouble. And that's precisely what this woman did. Uh, And the Department of Agriculture opened a two-year investigation and sent a team of investigators down to Key West not once but three times to document what nobody disputed, which was that these were outdoor cats with no shelters to sleep at night, Uh, and ultimately sat down with the uh, owners of the museum and began to dictate to them that the the uh, changes that would be necessary in order for the museum to come into compliance with a federal law that was originally uh, enacted to enable the federal government to uh, take care of primates in science experiments and laboratories and things. But they had stretched it all the way to cats at the Hemingway Museum. Now, for those of you of a constitutional mindset, you might say to yourself, well, where does the federal government derive any constitutional authority to tell uh, the Hemingway Home and Museum how to take care of its cats? Particularly cats that were not bought or sold, but were merely born uh, and not for nothing are marooned at the very southern tip of Florida and will never cross a state line. Well, it's got to be the Commerce Clause, right? Because that's what it always is. So how do you get there? Well, you've got to hand it to the 11th Circuit. Here's how they got there. There's a gift shop at the museum and it sells cat-related merchandise. So that means these cats have a substantial effect on interstate commerce because people might be coming down from New York and Virginia to buy cat-related potholders and keychains. Well, this is fake judging. This is not a genuine attempt by any reasonable stretch of the imagination to enforce constitutional limits on government power, and I will say this, it is a mockery. It is a mockery of the principle of enumerated powers Particularly in the wake of a decision that we were all assured was going to or had tightened up the Commerce Clause Doctrine. Well, apparently the 11th Circuit at least didn't get the message. And by the way, you may recall, the 11th Circuit was the court that originally struck down the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act on Commerce Clause grounds. So if anything, the message the 11th Circuit got apparently was to loosen up. And boy, did they. Cats in the Hemingway Museum. Well, thank goodness that the framers plan for limited government the thing that is supposed to be our primary protection from a tyrannical federal government is in the hands of A judiciary like that That should be very scary uh, very concerning to all of us. Let me turn to another example This one is going to be familiar. I hope to all of you in the audience uh, And that is the city or the Kilo v. city of New London case. This was a case presenting the question uh, effectively of whether the public use clause of the Fifth Amendment means anything. You may recall that the Fifth Amendment provides that uh, public property shall not be taken for private use without just compensation. This imposes two distinct limits on government takings. First, it has to be for a truly public purpose, like a road or a hospital or a school. And second, you have to provide just compensation. The issue in the Kelo case was, was the first limitation. When the city of New London proposed to take a bunch of homes and businesses belonging to law-abiding property owners, bulldoze the entire neighborhood and transfer the property to a private property developer, basically to build Yuppieville for Pfizer, to build $600,000 townhomes and a four-star hotel so that Pfizer executives could live in the neighborhood and wouldn't have to associate with working class people like Suzette Kilo, who was a nurse working two jobs, is that a public use? Believe it or not, the city didn't even try to make that argument. Instead, they said, well, it's a public purpose. And that's close enough. And here's how it's a public purpose. We might generate some jobs as we move to create Yuppieville. Well, we'll certainly hire some bulldozer drivers. That much we know. Second, maybe Yuppieville will generate more property taxes than the existing neighborhood. And that would be a public purpose. if it ever gets built, by the way, those of you who know the end of the story, um, this, the uh, Fort Trumbull neighborhood where this travesty occurred is actually just a giant brownfield now. It's about a 99-acre uh, vacant uh, lot after they got finished bulldozing all the properties, uh, the economy tanked, and basically now it's an empty lot. Congratulations, City of New London. Now, how did this happen? Well, it happened because the case got to the US Supreme Court and five justices looked at this and said, yeah, public purpose is good enough. Doesn't We don't need to actually hold them to a public use. Uh, Granted, this isn't a highway, it's not a public school, it's not something like that, but maybe, maybe this project will generate some additional tax revenue, and that was enough. That, too, is an example of fake judging. Why on earth do you think they put the public use provision in the Constitution if not to prevent precisely this? Is it to protect us from some legislator who just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'll bulldoze a neighborhood, Just, just for fun. Maybe, but not really. It's because somebody else was going to wake up and say, you know, I really covet that piece of property. By the way, Fort Trumbull is a beautifully situated neighborhood. It is right where the Thames River comes out into Long Island Sound, and Suzette Kilo's house was in the best spot to see where that happens. It was a gorgeous location. The reason the public use provision is in the Fifth Amendment is not to prohibit prohibit truly arbitrary takings of property. It's to prevent exactly what happened in this case, which is that some politically connected property developer will covet a piece of property and not wish to engage in market transactions in order to obtain it. So they go to a bunch of yokels on a city council and come up with a plan. And what follows is like the, the, the night follows the day if you don't have a properly engaged judiciary to protect you. And we don't, at least when it comes to the Fifth Amendment and federalism. And let me end with one last point, uh, one last illustration. The, uh, the, The Supreme Court has held for over 100 years that each and every one of us has a constitutional right to earn a living in the occupation of our choice, subject only to reasonable government regulation. Now I'm not sure, I still can't tell whether Ed and I disagree on that, we can get to it later, but let's just take as a given that doctrinally speaking, in other words, according to the US Supreme Court, the correct reading of the 14th Amendment is that it protects, among other things, the right to earn a living. When when that right was first acknowledged, there was actually some meaningful judicial review, at least in some cases. There was judicial engagement. But uh, as Roger explained in his remarks uh, around the time of the New Deal, the Supreme Court and the lower courts simply decided to get out of the business of providing genuine judicial review in most economic liberties cases, including cases involving the right to earn a living. But they didn't have the integrity to say, you know what, we were wrong. This right isn't really protected by the Constitution. That would have been a mistake, but at least it would have been an honest mistake. Instead, what they said was, well, we'll use this thing called the rational basis test to protect economic liberties and other rights that we consider to be non-fundamental. Now stop for just a moment. America? Land of the free? The place, the beacon of freedom where people come from all over the world to pursue the American dream and the right to earn a living is not fundamental in this country? Are you insane? Well, no, you're not insane. You're ends-oriented. It's not that the courts really don't, I don't believe that any judge really thinks that the right to earn a living is non-fundamental. It's just that they don't want to protect it. And so you categorize it as non-fundamental because then what happens? Then you get to apply a fake standard of review and not actually have to do any hard work. You just say, well, this is a rational basis case. That means the government wins. I can put my least talented law clerk to work on the task of rationalizing back from there and go fishing this afternoon. You think that's funny? That's the way these cases are decided in most courts. It's not funny. And I'll give you a story that illustrates that. Louisiana alone among the states requires a license to be a florist. So if you take two flowers and put them together in an aesthetically appealing way, you've just made a floral arrangement, and in Louisiana, you may not sell that floral arrangement without permission from the government. You have to have a state license, just like doctors or lawyers do. At the time we challenged this law in 2003, the licensing exam was so incredibly subjective, they've since changed it, we shamed them into changing it a bit, Uh, but besides passing a 50-question true or false test, you also had to create four floral arrangements in four hours, that would then be graded, and you really got to hand it to Louisiana because they don't do anything halfway in this area, that would then be graded not by some theoretically disinterested bureaucrat, but by a panel of six working florists who they would bring in to determine whether you were good enough to go out and compete with them. The answer was usually no. We actually got the data. uh, The pass rate in the Louisiana florist exam was about 35%. For comparison, the pass rate on the Louisiana bar exam was 61.5%. So it's about twice as hard to be a a, a florist in Louisiana as it was to be a lawyer. Now, uh, the arrangements that you would create were graded on such important points as whether the flowers were picked properly and whether the arrangement had the correct focal point. Because we all know what a disaster it is when you get an arrangement without the correct focal point. And fortunately for the people of the Pelican State, the Louisiana Horticulture Commission had their back uh, and was there to ensure that nobody who wasn't competent to put together floral arrangements got to be a florist in Louisiana. Um, we represented a number of women, including our lead client, uh, Sandy Meadows. Sandy was a high school dropout from Mississippi who uh, lived in Baton Rouge and was a widow. She had no vocational skills except for one, and that's that she could make floral arrangements. So she was actually working as the manager of um, a floral department at an Albertsons grocery store in Baton Rouge. Uh, For those of you who've never been to the floral department of an Albertsons grocery store, uh, this is not the place you turn for your daughter's wedding. It's where you stop off at midnight when you have an apology to make and words fail you. <laughs> she was perfectly competent to manage the floral department. But when the Louisiana Horticulture Commission, or the, floral, the Louisiana Floral Police, as I called them, found out about it, they told the grocery store, you have to have a licensed florist working in your floral department. And because they only needed one florist, they had to let Sandy go. And so she had no job. Uh, I went down to prepare her for a deposition in September of 2005. Uh, in baton rouge is about um, 95 degrees out 98 percent humidity and when i saw her um, she was in her apartment not in her apartment she was in the common area of her apartment lying on a couch being fanned by a neighbor with a piece of cardboard and she had surgical staples from here to here because she just had her gallbladder out she was outside of her apartment because her utility bill uh, she couldn't pay her utility bill so her electricity had been cut off she had no air conditioning so i put her in my rental car Took her to a piggly wiggly grocery store and wrote a check for $150 to get her power turned back in on. Then I checked her into a La Quinta motor in so she could have some air conditioning. I said, we're canceling the deposition. We'll reschedule. Sandy Meadows died alone and in poverty one month later, unemployed, because the state of Louisiana said that she had to have a license to be a florist, and a federal judge thought that was a reasonable exercise of the state government's power to regulate occupations. Preposterous and outrageous. That's fake judging. We need a lot less of it in this country, and I want to I end by, by giving a very concrete illustration of, of the difference between real judging and fake judging. This is coconut water. I've gotten into this lately. It's sort of nature's Gatorade. Consider two different laws. One law prohibits you from advertising coconut water, and the other law prohibits you from selling it. Now, for those of you who are constitutional law nerds, you already know where I'm going with this, but there are two different tests that would apply. If you challenge the advertising ban in court, you get something called Central Hudson, the Central Hudson test, a form of intermediate review, well within the ambit of what I refer to as judicial engagement. What are the hallmarks of judicial engagement? They are these. In the advertising, if you challenge the advertising ban, the government will have to show that there is truly something problematic about this coconut water or about advertising it. If they claim that it's unhealthy, they will have to prove that it's unhealthy. They will also have to show that that the regulation that they have proposed actually advances their stated interest, whatever it might be, protecting us from overhydration, perhaps. Uh, And they will also have to show, basically, that there wasn't some less restrictive thing they could have done, like put a warning label on the box. All right. That's judicial engagement. That's real judging. Now move over here. If the government bans the sale of coconut water, everything is different. Why? Because the Supreme Court thinks that commercial activity is much less important than commercial speech. And so selling the coconut water is a non-fundamental right that receives rational basis review. And rational basis review is a synonym for make-believe judging. In rational basis review, the government carries no burden whatsoever. Remember, with the advertising ban, the government actually had to prove whatever factual assertions it was making in court with real evidence, and the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that that burden is not satisfied with mere speculation and conjecture. Well, come with me through the looking glass over to rational basis review and everything changes. The court will be completely uninterested in what the government's actual motivations were for regulating the sale of coconut water. The government will not be required to support any of its factual assertions with evidence. And this is, in some ways, I, I say my favorite part, but it's, it's, it's uh, outrageous also. If the government lawyers are insufficiently creative to make up a justification for the sales ban, guess who gets involved? The judge. The ju- judges are actually charged under the rational basis test with helping make up conceivable justifications. And by the way, conceivable means not necessarily sincere, not genuine, not real, just conceivable. Can we make something up? So the court actually has to get involved in helping the government make up justifications for a challenged law. Now, that's not real judging. That's fake judging. And I think, I hope we can all acknowledge that. But guess what? The rational basis test, as I just described it to you, is the default setting in all constitutional cases. In order to get any kind of a heightened scrutiny, and heightened, by the way, is just uh, uh, court jargon for real or genuine. In order to get any heightened slash real scrutiny, you have to uh, satisfy the court that you're dealing with either a fundamental right or a suspect classification or some fairly exceptional case where you should get genuine judicial review or as we call it, judicial engagement. Absent that, the default setting is rational basis review, fake judging. Made up justifications, judges abandoning neutrality and and acting as advocates on behalf of the government, Uh, nothing real there. Basically, as I said before, an ends-oriented approach to judging where the end of the case is already in view, the government will be allowed to do whatever it wants to do, and we reason backwards from there. The thesis of the book is incredibly simple. The thesis of the book is no more fake judging. We can disagree about what should fill that void once we get rid of fake judging, and that's fine. Those are interesting and important discussions to have. But, But liberty and limited government are the principles upon which this country was founded, and they are too sacred and too important To be entrusted to a judiciary that cannot tell the difference between real and fake judging. Our judiciary has lost its way, and that is why the principle of constitutionally limited government is imperiled. No more fake judging, judicial engagement in all constitutional cases. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Clark. Now here to defend fake judging (laughs) on the rational basis test. Uh, Actually no, Ed uh, Ed Whelan is is an old friend. Uh, He is, uh, we're very grateful that he has come to offer some critical remarks. Uh, He's president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in Washington. Um, He directs their program on the Constitution, the courts, and the culture, Uh, his areas of expertise include uh, constitutional law uh, and the judicial confirmation process. Uh, He's a contributor to uh, National Reviews Online's uh, Bench Memos blog, and a very prolific contributor to that, I might note. Um, And he's been a leading commentator on nominations to the Supreme Court and the lower courts on issues of constitutional law. His essays have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, in opinion journals and in academic symposia and law reviews. Um, in 2011, uh, the National Law Journal named uh, Ed among its champions and visionaries uh, in the practice of law in DC. Um, the National Law Journal praised uh, him for pioneering the field of legal blogging and for offering commentary that infuses national debates over judicial nominees. Supreme Court ethics and appellate court decisions, so much so that when a Senate Republican cites outside research into the record of an Obama nominee, it's more likely than not the handiwork of Ed Whalen. Um, He 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 graduated from Harvard College um, and and Phi Beta Kappa and uh, got his JD from Harvard as well, magna cum laude, uh, in 1985 uh, he where he was a member of the board of editors of the Harvard Law Review um, he uh, uh, was um, uh, he clerked for uh, uh, Judge J Clifford Wallace on the Ninth Circuit and also for Justice Antonin Scalia on the uh, on the um, US Co- uh, Supreme Court um, he, before joining the Ethics and Public Policy Center in 2004, uh, Ed was the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. Uh, would you welcome, please, Ed Whelan.
2: Thanks very much, uh, Roger. Uh, thanks to all of you for, for being here, and thank you, Clark. It's always great to be uh, invited to Cato, though I must say I often feel like I've been invited as the skunk of judicial restraint to the Garden Party of libertarian judicial activism. I mean, judicial engagement. (laughs) Uh, But I'm especially grateful to Roger and Clark for inviting me, uh, for they have ample reason to anticipate that I would uh, disagree with uh, uh, much of uh, Clark's book. Not, as it happens, much that he's said here, but I'll uh, turn to those areas of disagreement. I do though want to make sure I start by um, paying Clark and his book the um, proper respect they're owed. I think Clark has done, uh, really. the book is really an impressive achievement, clear, engaging, forceful, just as Clark's presentation here was. It does an excellent job presenting what I'll call the gospel according to the Institute for Justice. That's not a gospel that I uh, subscribe to, but um, it has has its appeals. and I certainly want to praise the work that Clark and Institute of Just- for Justice do, representing many people victimized by stupid laws. Uh, from a result- results-oriented perspective, I'm, I think, almost always uh, cheering for IJ's clients. And indeed, I, uh, there may, I, I, I emphasize that there are many of them who I think probably do deserve to win. And of course, in a world in which uh, public interest shops on the left push for the courts to impose status policies, regardless of their constitutional merit. There's certainly a lot to be said for pushback from the libertarian free market side. Now, let me uh, highlight some of the large areas of disagreement I I have with Clark. They're at a higher level, I think, than uh, some of what's been discussed so far. I do want to emphasize. I wrote a series of blog posts over the last week or two spelling out some of these concerns. I don't, I don't expect to, to get to um, all of them here. But uh, what Clark's book really aims to do is to move the rhetoric of how we talk about the court away from judicial activism and judicial restraint, that paradigm, to this new paradigm that he set forth of judicial engagement versus judicial abdication. I think that shift is both unnecessary and mistaken. I'd like to explain why. Look, the term judicial activism, like every term we use in political discourse, is an inexact term that's subject to misuse. Uh, I don't. Uh, cl- I certainly don't claim that 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 it's a perfect term. I will defend, though, uh, it is a term that can be used properly. The way I've tried to use it. As to uh, on questions of constitutional law to identify judicial decisions that wrongly override laws or policies that flow from the democratic processes. Emphasis uh, on the word wrongly and on overriding democratic enactments. Now, to be sure, the use of that term immediately raises the question well, on what basis do you say it's wrong? And I would say that one of the virtues of a term like judicial activism is, first of all, it invites that question. It turns the debate to constitutional philosophy. You say Roe versus Wade is wrong. On what basis do you say it's wrong? Um, I, my own uh, position is uh, in favor of original meaning, originalism, supplemented by, by judicial restraint. But I don't think we I don't intend to get very deep into that here. I do want to emphasize that my own use of the term judicial activism doesn't involve probing the subjective motivations of judges, psychologizing about um, what, what might drive them to do what they're doing, simply says, this decision is wrong under a proper understanding of the Constitution. It intrudes on democratic processes. Therefore, it properly deserves the label activism. And uh, one virtue of this term judicial activism is, I think, is that it properly signals that judges in a system of separation of powers have a properly limited role. Yes, it is important and essential that judges enforce in proper cases the, the, the limits on governmental power and the rights that the Constitution confers. It's equally important that when, that when uh, they have no warrant to do so, they don't intrude. Judicial activism is not uh, a synonym for judicial review. That is, for the power of courts to to strike down laws. It simply refers to that subset of actions uh, where where the courts have wrongly done so. And I'd like to emphasize that judicial activism, the way I use it, the way I think it should be used, is not some all-purpose synonym for decisions I think are wrong, uh, much less decisions I I disagree with on policy grounds. Uh, There's an opposing error in the opposite direction called judicial passivism, when judges are too passive. And I think that concept is what would properly be captured by the sound part of the, of, of the phrase judicial abdication. Uh, judges, uh, when they are too passive, when they fail to enforce limits uh, in the Constitution, rights in the Constitution, it's fair to say that they, they, they abdicate their proper role. And that, that is a serious error, uh, an error in the opposite direction of judicial activism. Judicial restraint is, is the, is the uh, you know, mean in the middle. Now, I would like, I think one reason why, let me say, Clark, Clark would, would use this term, judicial engagement, in a way that really deprives us of any separate term to um, identify terms that, that are uh, judicially activist. Indeed, uh, in the part of the book that may have provoked me most, <laughs> Clark uh, contends that we don't have an activist judiciary and that it's absurd to think otherwise. Um, we could get in a very long d- debate over uh, how, how one, one could you know, best characterize the, the uh, jurisprudence of the last uh, certainly decades since the 60s. But I think uh, judicial activism is one big part of it. But I also think there's, a, there's an important linkage between the error of judicial activism and the error of judicial passivism, And I'm a, I, I fear that Clark overlooks this linkage. Judges who are going to uh, invent rights that aren't in the Constitution by looking to their own sense of you know, the living Constitution are going to be uh, equally ready to ignore those rights and limits that are. It's a whole judicial mindset that, that, that uh, rejects any objective limits on what judging is. Further, I think, and uh, I think this goes to, a, to a, a deeper divide between us, or at least a, a, in terms of how strategically to address this question. I think that when you have legislatures and citizens who get accustomed to, to judicial activism, who accept the court, the court saying, "No, you can't intrude in these. You can't uh, legislate in these areas. You can't make policy in these areas that we have decided are off limits." that has the inevitable effect of infantilizing citizens infantilizing legislatures, and making them less responsible in the, in the areas that, that, that are left to them. So my call would be uh, for Clark to use this, this paradigm of judicial restraint, judicial activism, and judicial pacifism to complain that uh, in, in the areas he's identified, the courts are too passive uh, and that that is a serious problem. I don't see the advantage, uh, broadly speaking, to trying to jettison this paradigm and replace it with uh, terms of judicial engagement, which always makes me ask, okay, well, when's the wedding, yeah. uh, and, uh, and judicial abdication. Uh, so that's uh, one, one big area of disagreement. Let me... Um, I've identified another, which is that I think judicial activism is a reality. Um, Clark maintains in his book that it is a, if not an utter myth, he he's the term a bogeyman that we use to, to scare judges into being deferential to the legislative processes. If it's a bogeyman, it's not doing a very good job. Uh, when you look, look at how uh, I think the activism around is. Again, you, you can have. Lots of activism at the same time, you have lots of passivism. Those are not contradictory propositions. And I'm afraid that Clark, in his book, treats them as, as, as though they were. In terms of how one goes about construing what the Constitution means, what particular provisions of the Constitution mean, I think that Clark and I do have some differences, or at least that he doesn't really flesh out in his book. Um, a particular uh, judicial philosophy. Uh, there, there is, um, per- forgive me if I missed it, I don't think Clark anywhere embraces originalism. He somewhere talks about textualism.
1: I do, chapter one, last page.
2: On originalism? Yep. I'm sorry to miss that. Or do, you, do you embrace originalism as, okay, well, then, then, we, then we don't have a, we don't have a, a disagreement to level of theory. So, so, sorry to have missed that. Um, Clark in his book, uh, posits, um, argues, that the Constitution uh, creates so-called unenumerated rights, these rights that judges are somehow supposed to discern the content of by looking to who knows what. Uh, I, uh, as, as I spell out in my blog post, uh, just disagree um, with his conclusion there. First of all, I don't think that the Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, is unenumerated. I think there's a the challenge of figuring out what its content is. That's the exact same challenge we have for any other provision in the Constitution. I don't see how it's uh, any different to try to figure out, from an originalist perspective, what privileges and immunities are than it is to try to figure out what, what the freedom of speech uh, under the First Amendment means. Uh, second, and uh, this will maybe provoke Roger to j- jump up and strangle me. But I reject the, uh, the uh, I'll call the Ninth Amendment uh, libertarian uh, uh, fantasy uh, vision. <laughs> um, I, did, um, for reasons I've sped out, do not think the Ninth Amendment is some sort of font of unenumerated rights for judges to discern. Uh, I will uh, highlight that uh, I think it was about three years ago that Professor Michael McConnell, in this very room, I think, uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, spelled out um, uh, his own theory of the Ninth Amendment in a way that, like, um, I think, uh, clearly rejects uh, this uh, libertarian uh, version. And uh, nor do I think that substantive, substantive due process uh, is, is is a coherent uh, theory. Uh, I uh, let me finish up with a f- uh, couple more thoughts, and then we can get into the back and forth with Clark and and, and with you. Look, I. I uh, am as suspicious of legislators' motives as as I think anyone you'll find. I worked as a Senate staffer for two and a half years, and if that doesn't you know uh, open your eyes to to uh, how decisions are made, I'm not quite sure what would. Uh, I heartily uh, subscribe to public choice theory and to a deep cynicism about wh- how legislators act as they do. I would say I would extend that same cynicism or skepticism to. Why judges act as they do, and what motivates them, and I'm afraid that uh, Clark just ignores the whole danger of judicial uh, aggrandizement—the temptation to to, uh, to, to power there—and th- I'm afraid that's symptomatic of what I see of a one-sidedness in his book. I document a few more examples where he uh, is going to you know very eager for judges to play this muscular role, and th- I think, uh, think without recognizing the downside. So I would say. Again, uh, very interesting book that I encourage you to read. Uh, I only wish that uh, that Clark was making the case against judicial passivism. I want to be clear because I've been misquoting this before. I'm not saying pacifism. I'm not arguing for judges to be peacemakers, <laughs> but for judges not to be too passive. And with that, um, maybe we can have some back and forth. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ed. Um, Yes, we did have uh, Judge McConnell here a few years ago to give the Simon Lecture, in fact. Um, And he did uh, dance around the issue of the Ninth Amendment and unenumerated rights, uh, which suggests that we are ecumenical here at the Cato Institute. And we're open to a variety of views, which is why we have them here represented today. Uh, For a quick four or five-minute response before we... uh, have a little exchange, perhaps, and then open up the questions, Clark.
1: Well, thank you for that gracious commentary, Ed. And I, I, it's nice to, you know, people on our side of the spectrum at least can disagree agreeably. Um, I don't know when the wedding is going to be, either, Ed. But I will say that, unfortunately for you, um, because of a all too rare example of judicial engagement five years ago, it can be a shotgun wedding even in DC. <clears throat> That was a heller joke, no? All right. <laughs> so I think that, um, I don't deny that there have been judicially activist uh, decisions, but I think what's important is to keep it in context. We have judicial activism, perhaps, sometimes, and we have a torrent of judicial abdication. When I hear Ed worrying about judicial ab- activism, I, I, it brings to mind the image of a passenger on the Titanic complaining about a leaky toilet in his stateroom. Like, do you happen to notice the giant gash on the side of the ship and the millions of gallons of seawater rushing in? Maybe we should think about that, too. Uh, and that, to me, really encapsulates the issue. We have an epidemic of make-believe judging. We have an epidemic of judicial abdication. And yes, there's, there are examples of judicial activism mixed in there. But if you had to characterize one as being a more serious problem than the other, um, which, as a working litigator, I have to. I don't have the luxury of working in a, in a basically a, a rarefied environment. Um, the arguments that I and my colleagues at the Institute for Justice make every day in court have real consequences for real people. And you can't sort of just wave a hand and say, well, um, I'd like you to be able to keep your home or your job or your reproductive organs. But I'm afraid it would be infantilizing to the American public as a whole if judges got involved in protecting you from the government which is trying to take you away from those things. So you have to have a theory that holds up in the real world. And I don't believe that Ed's does. I do believe that mine and and the theory that that the Institute for Justice litigates its cases, um, or that that is the framework for our cases, I believe it does stand up uh, in the real world. So um, I agree with Ed's definition of judicial uh, activism, by the way. But the real challenge, as I think Ed did and will acknowledge, is. What is a wrongful overruling of the democratic process? Let me give you some examples. In 1883, a restrained Supreme Court upheld an Alabama law that made it a crime to marry outside of your race. Was this a laudable example of judicial restraint and a a wonderful avoidance of judicial activism? After all, there is nothing in the Constitution about a constitutional right to marry and this law applied equally to everybody. Everybody was forbidden from marrying outside of their race. So there's no obvious equal protection problem. But as everybody knows, the Supreme Court overruled that decision, Pace v. Alabama, in a 1967 decision, Loving v. Virginia. Was that judicial activism? I think not. Uh, another one. In 1927, the US Supreme Court said that there is nothing in the Constitution that would prevent a state from sterilizing people for eugenic purposes. At one time uh, or another, over 30 states in this country had eugenics laws on the books, and in fact, the Nazi uh, regime in Germany got their eugenics laws from us. The Supreme Court said that was fine the first time it looked at it in Buck v. Bells, a famous line from a model and a champion of judicial restraint, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, three generations of imbeciles are enough, and if the state of Virginia wants to sterilize Carrie Buck, the U.S. Constitution has nothing to say about it, even even in a case where if the Supreme Court had done the least bit of digging to determine the real facts, they would have discovered that the particular attempt to sterilize Carrie Buck was based not only on a massively immoral and unconstitutional theory, namely that it's a legitimate end of state governments to try to create a master race, but also that it was a lie on the facts. They said Carrie Buck was promiscuous and dim-witted. Well, she wasn't promiscuous. She did have a baby out of wedlock because she was raped by a family friend. But an unengaged abdicationist judiciary didn't care about that because, really, why, why require of the government that they come into court and tell the truth if you already know what the outcome of the case is going to be? And second, Kerry Buck wasn't dimwitted. There was no evidence in the record to support that. Um, so was it, was it activist when the U.S. Supreme Court just 15 years later in Skinner v. Oklahoma effectively overruled Buck v. Bell, notwithstanding the absence of anything specific in the Constitution about a right to reproduce or not have your reproductive organs torn out by a master race pursuing state? I think not. And finally, I'll leave you with a case uh, on this topic, finally, uh, that the Supreme Court actually managed to get right from the beginning. Uh, In uh, Oregon, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a law passed that forbade parents from sending their children to private schools, in fact, outlawed private schools. This law was passed at the behest of the KKK and other nativists in Oregon who wanted Catholic children to have to attend public schools. Why? Because at the time, public schools were avowedly Protestant, and they wanted to brainwash these children into Protestantism and out of Catholicism. That case got to the US Supreme Court. Uh, It was Pierce. The Society of Sisters in the Supreme Court, as I said, managed to get it right. And they said, even though there's nothing specific in the Constitution about a right to guide the upbringing of your own children, the 14th Amendment is best read as protecting that right. Now, we can get into the Ninth Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause uh, during the question and answer, um, but let me just leave you with this. Uh, Ed had actually an exchange on NRO with my colleague, uh, Paul Sherman, in which Ed said the following about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It strikes me as quite plausible that the Privileges or Immunities Clause, properly construed, does protect some substantive economic rights. Welcome to the team. And I'm entirely open to the proposition that it or other provisions of the Constitution protect various other rights that Mr. Sherman labeled unenumerated. I don't know which of the rights I just discussed Ed is willing to sign on to, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, sure, let me me respond briefly. Um, Clark is a working litigator, and his clients are all on one side of this um, debate over judicial activism versus judicial restraint versus judicial passivism, so it's entirely natural that he sees only the problem of passivism. I disagree, uh, you know, entirely with his uh, notion that my view is comparable to complaining about a leaking toilet in the Titanic. I would say Clark's, especially when you look at his chapter in which he makes the case that there's no such thing as judicial activism, based on, you know, I would call statistical flimflam. Is like the person who's uh, out out in a boat in the middle of a lake with people drowning all around him, and Clark says, "How can you be drowning? The the, the on average, this lake is only you know four inches deep. Uh, so uh, there there's there's no reason why the problem of judicial passivism can't coexist with the problem of judicial activism. As I explained before, I think there's ample reason to think that they that they they are linked. Um, Clark says that, that, that judicial pacifism is a bigger problem than judicial activism. Again, I don't think that's so in magnitude, but I don't, I'm not really interested in that argument in that I don't think it's an either or. I would say though, as the kilo, uh, as a response to kilo shows, one advantage, one, compens- one compensation, I should say, uh, in the event of errors of judicial pacifism is that the political processes are available to remedy them? Now, that's not to say they're always going to work, and I'm not defending errors of judicial passivism on that ground. But I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a point of sharp distinction between errors of judicial passivism and errors of judicial activism. On uh, Clark's um, genuine parade of horribles, I, I, uh, you know, I'm, I, the, the question becomes. In each case, let's look and look at the Constitution. We don't look to a specific meaning. I'm not looking to you know to see whether there's a provision that says you know thou uh, thou shalt not sterilize. Uh, the question becomes uh, whether, uh, under whatever interpretive philosophy you settle on, you can properly determine that these things are or are not constitutional. Now, look, uh, and I'm as I as I say in the uh, in the the uh, post that. Clark quoted, I'm very open uh, to Clark's position that the privileges and immunities clause provides that. I see Philip Hamburger has provided a, a, an, a has written an article that argues to the contrary, but let's hear that. Um, and it's not a matter of, of appealing to some sort of grand enumerated right. What we really see in Clark's appeal, I think, is what I call the perfectionist fallacy. The notice, the, the notion that if there's something awful that um, the Constitution might seem to allow, then we, uh, we, we better deem it forbidden. Well, look, the Constitution uh, for quite a long time uh, allowed the horror of slavery. The Constitution is far from a document that guarantees perfect results. Its genius lies not in its <laughs> spelling out either generally or in detail um, what, what a just society shall consist of. It rather is in its diffusion of power and in enabling us, enabling a responsible citizenry, which, alas, um, we don't always have and which I'm afraid we may be getting further away from, to to, to develop those policies um, that will move us closer to justice. So I think I'll just uh, leave it at that. Thank you.
0: Okay, let's open it up to you folks. A couple of rules. Um, Wait for the microphone to get to you. Um, Identify yourself and any... Uh, affiliation you may have and who your question is directed to. Let's we'll start right here with Alan Gura, who needs no introduction to this audience. Thank you so much, uh, Alan Gura, uh, Guran Pazeski. Everybody agrees that some judges have a better grasp on the Constitution than other judges, whatever your personal beliefs might be. Uh, but the question here seems to be of deference. And so I guess I would ask, uh, Ed, uh, who is the greatest constitutional scholar
2: on your local school board. Uh, why do we defer to these people on matters of constitutional interpretation? Well, um, I think the answer to your question is that we don't expect to have you know a nation of constitutional scholars indeed. Given the miseducation of lawyers in this country, I don't think we have, you know, the fewer lawyers on that school board, I, I would say probably the the the, the better. Uh, the answer uh, is that that is what uh, government of the people, by the people, for the people. That is what representative government within constitutional limits consists of. Now, again, there there are checks on on what a particular school board may come up with, but I, I guess I would ask. What's the alternative? Are we going to have... um, Now, now you're... I mean, one question becomes... Look, I I have not embraced um, the standard of the rational basis test. Uh, Indeed, I think the rational basis test is illegitimate. I think it's illegitimate uh, in the same way that I think heightened scrutiny is illegitimate. I think the court has made up the standards of review uh, that it applies in inconsistent ways. Uh, so, So... i 'm not saying that that in any particular case or she deference to whatever, whatever the board does. I unlike uh, Clark, i don't think there's some sort of abstract ends means test that applies in all cases. I think one needs to look at, at what the meaning of, of a particular constitutional provision is and see how the challenge policy um, <clears throat> comports with that provision
1: i obviously it's a great question. Let me flesh it out a little bit for with some real world examples. Um, as many of you probably know last week. A girl in California was suspended from her school for wearing an NRA T-shirt. A boy uh, here, I think it was in Maryland or somewhere nearby, was uh, suspended for chewing a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun, or at least his teacher thought it was the shape of a gun. Uh, and then there was a famous Supreme Court, well not famous enough, but there was a Supreme Court case a few years ago in which I believe it was a 12 or 13 year old girl was strip searched in Arizona for t- by teachers looking for Advil. I do not want Anybody deferring to people who behave like this in our schools And I don't care whether they're on the school board or they're a state legislator They have not earned deference when they behave this way
2: and how did we end up with such such idiocy among uh, school officials? I I would suggest the answer um, Lies with the decision in the early 70s. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting to name it right now. Pinker No, that 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 subjects I'm sorry I didn't hear the first word you said Maybe, maybe it's Goss versus Lopez. Thank you, but that that that, that uh, imposes this whole regime of of, of intense uh, supervision on on these officials, and then has these people acting without any judgment at all. They they're, they they think they have to have you know because we have this war on drugs, we have to have this complete ban on, on any drugs in the school. So if you're found with some, some aspirin, you're you're kicked out or suspended for for five days. It's this utter idiocy that um, has that pervades um, our uh, school system.
1: So a teacher who suspends a child for chewing a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun is taking her cues from Supreme Court decisions.
2: I, I think it's a I, I consequence is spelling out over the decades of this, uh, is, this uh, due process revolution. Yeah. Everything has to be have, have, have rules that people follow without applying any sense.
0: Maybe it's just simply
2: that when you get the
0: government involved in education, this is what you get. <laughs> That's
2: that, yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that notion, too. As, uh, yes, over here, please. Hi, uh, Michael Ender's. I have two questions. The first is just a technical one, which has to do with the Eleventh Circuit decision you referred to. Was that a full full court decision or a panel decision?
1: That was a panel decision. Okay,
2: thanks. Um, I wanted to get to the bigger point: the the notion that um, setting a boundaries on legislature le- legislators uh, and vandalizes them. It seems to me that a lack of boundaries produces corruption. And the reason I'm a libertarian is because I believe that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I'd like some explanation of how proper boundaries infantilize legislators. Well, uh, quite simply, I never said such a thing. Um, The the, the question is when the court oversteps its proper boundaries and intrudes on the the, the realm of the legislatures and uh, deprives them of their authority. Again, there can be argument over just there's plenty of room for reasonable argument over what those bounds are, but I, I do not take the position that, that bounds on legislatures infantilize them. That's, that's I'm, I'm sorry if anyone's misunderstood me to that effect.
0: Questions? Yes, uh, this Young Woman.
2: Hi, thank you. Um, this question is for Mr. Neely. Um, uh, you know, could you identify yourself? Oh, sure, my name is Christina Pezzavano. Um, I'm a 2L at American University Law. Um, So just building off of Mr. Whalen's point about the libertarian fantasy of unenumerated powers or unenumerated rights, if the Supreme Court were to embrace its authority and to be able to recognize these unenumerated rights without, how would we do this without giving the justices too much discretionary power in deciding what issues to remove from their political realm
3: and thereby overrunning the process, the democratic process?
1: It's a great question. I appreciate it. Uh, let me preface it by saying this. What I heard Ed say was that the Ninth Amendment is a libertarian fantasy, or at least the idea that the Ninth Amendment protects unenumerated rights. And This is an important point because, among other things, um, I mentioned the Ninth Amendment I think three times in the book, always in passing. The Institute for Justice, to my knowledge, has never asserted a Ninth Amendment claim in any case that we filed. Um, Everybody can have their own opinions about what it means, but it's not an operable part of our limited government program. The doctrine of enumerated powers is supposed to take care of liberty uh, interests vis-a-vis the federal government, and with state governments, it's the privileges or immunities clause, which, as we heard one year ago on National Review, Ed acknowledged that it probably, or at least it plausibly protects
2: economic liberties, I'm and I'm perhaps... open, open to hearing the argument. Oh, I think you I said something
1: slightly different, actually. Okay. <laughs> But let's, let's not get bogged down. I'll show it to you after the, after the event. Um, well, you also told Clint Bullock six years ago that this was a serious and important and interesting issue, and you, you, you felt that it merited great study. I scoured the Internet looking for the results of your study, and I can't find
2: it. I, I said the same thing to you in a debate a couple years ago. Look, you guys, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to, happy to hear um, the, the serious debate over what the Privileges and Immunities Clause means. Um, and And... If it means what you argue it means, of course it should be enforced.
1: Okay, well, and then that leads me to the second part of the answer, which is there is no perfect answer that everybody will agree with. Uh, I think you have to decide on an interpretive framework. Ed and I basically share originalism as our font. Um, We apply it, obviously, in different ways. Roger uh, and Randy Barnett, and basically, most of the people I consider to be serious scholars on this issue are, are one kind or another of originalist. I think when you look at the history of the 14th Amendment, it is abundantly clear that the thing that prompted the proposal and ratification of the 14th Amendment was the massive violation of individual rights by states in the wake of the Civil War. Everything from free expression to the right to own a gun, because that was being systematically violated. People were being stripped of their guns so they'd be easier to intimidate and lynch, uh, to basic economic liberty, which is, after all, the opposite of slavery. I think it is ineluctably clear that these are the concerns that prompted the ratification of the 14th amendment and whichever provision you choose to place the most weight on whether it's due process as the supreme court does now or privileges or immunities as the framers of the 14th amendment actually intended i think it's quite clear that from a a genuinely historical original standpoint the 14th amendment protects individual rights and it is a chore to figure out which ones but you don't get to get out of that chore by just saying the dog ate my homework and i'm not even going to try
0: well in fact uh, there's been a lot that's written on the what was meant to be protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause, including an essay by yours truly, uh, right here at Cato in 1998. Uh, And you look at the 39th Congress, and you will see that they spelled it out fairly clearly, uh, drawing from Corfield v. Coriel in 1823, which addressed the Article IV Privileges and Immunities Clause and what it entailed. Uh, as well as the um, Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is a response to the Black Codes that came into effect right after the Civil War. Uh, And that uh, Civil Rights Act spelled out in some detail what those rights were. And um, that was alluded to by the 39th Congress repeatedly, uh, both of those points were, and then spelling it out uh, repeatedly themselves. Uh, With respect, and I understand what you're saying is that you're litigating these state cases under the 14th Amendment, but I'm of the radical view that the 14th Amendment also incorporates the Ninth Amendment and that the Ninth Amendment speaks of rights that were retained by the people you cannot retain, which you do not first have, and therefore, though that whole body of rights It's strange credulity to think that we had those during the first two years when we had no Bill of Rights. We had those because all rights except for the few in the body of the Constitution were by definition unenumerated. And that in order to get a few enumerated rights, we gave up. All the unenumerated rights that we had prior to then—it just simply strange credul- credulity. But don't get me going on the. Oh, oh, yeah. I think I've gotten you going. I was
2: wondering when, wondering when it happened. Let me, let me just be clear. And I think this is the, the, the McConnell theory. Uh, these the, the the natural rights that that preexisted the Constitution and preexisted the Bill of Rights are protected in a sense by a clear statement rule, but they're not protected as constitutional rights. They do not have the same status as, as the First Amendment. And, the, and the, the theory, which I know Randy Barnett and others have spelled out, that the First Amendment made no difference at all, that somehow the freedom of speech was equally protected by the Constitution after the First Amendment as before, strikes me as uh, very bizarre.
0: Well, it didn't strike Hamilton and Wilson as bizarre, because they spoke directly to that point. Let's have a question right up here.
2: Hello. Uh, excellent presentation. Uh, my name is Michael Zach. I wrote A
3: History of the Republican Party, and I ask—I discuss this in my book, but here's a question. What is a right, R-I-G-H-T? What is it?
0: It's a justified claim to stand in a relationship with some other person or person such that that other person or person has a correlative obligation to do or not do some particular thing. Just what I was going to say.
1: <laughs>
0: in litigators' terms, It's the ability to get the government
1: off your client's back in a particular area on the basis of real facts, real evidence, and a genuine quest for the truth. If all of those things are involved, then you are dealing with a right, and you have at least some chance of getting a court to protect it.
0: But that wouldn't address the rights that you have vis-a-vis your neighbor. uh, Yeah, I'm
1: I'm a litigator, not a philosopher, Roger.
0: I know, that's right. Uh, Tim?
2: Tim Lynch with Cato. Um, I'd like to go back to the Hemingway Museum and this decision by the Eleventh Circuit that said because there's the gift store. Those that's,
0: who don't remember, that's the Cats case.
2: Right, the Cats case. We were, because the uh, there was a gift store selling other products relating to cats, the Commerce Clause was triggered, allowing the uh, the reach of federal power to reach in that situation. I just wanted to ask Mr. Whalen
3: what his view of of the commerce clause under the originalist, uh, you know, perspective of the Constitution, and uh, what's the proper reading of the, of that power?
2: Well, thanks for the question. Uh, I, um, you know, the the, 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 case, the case as Clark described it to me, uh, the ruling sounds absurd. I've been trying to think of some sort of clever cat pun for you know (laughs) some time now. I haven't come up with one. Uh, But in in terms of, um, I've never, I've never, uh, you know, I I am dubious, highly dubious that that the the ruling is right. Obviously, the Eleventh Circuit is operating uh, within a realm of very expansive commerce clause precedents, Um, and uh, so that presents the question of you know whether it acted properly in applying those precedents, um, but uh, again, on its face, the, I, I, I'd be very, very skeptical of the ruling, but I don't have a, I don't have a well-developed theory to, to offer you. Uh,
1: let me add, if I could, that this, this brings up an, a really important point, I think, that, that's important for me to clarify, and I feel like I haven't done it well enough yet. There's an incredibly important difference between judicial restraint and reflexive restraint. I don't object to judicial restraint. I don't want judges uh, poking around at the Constitution, making things up, but I'm not talking about just restraining yourself from doing that. I'm talking about reflexive restraint, which is an essentially ends-oriented process of judging, which I think was reflected in the Hemingway-Katz decision, and also in the Obamacare decision. That was reflexive restraint. You wanna know what the face of reflexive restraint is? That's the face of reflexive restraint. Is the United States Supreme Court authorizing the federal government to nationalize about one-sixth of the economy on the basis of a ridiculous, and I use that word advisedly, I've read the opinion a number of times, of a ridiculous theory that Congress was exercising its tax power when it imposed upon us the individual mandate. Again, that's the face of reflexive judicial restraint and that's what I'm arguing against in the book.
0: Uh, Well, Ed, let me pose a question for you. If you are an originalist, and I think we all are today originalists of some sort or other, then uh, you surely cannot believe that the Constitution would have been ratified if those who wrote and ratified it understood the commerce power as authorizing something like Obamacare. Uh, that surely was not what the commerce power was written to enable to do. In fact, when Ma- uh, Hamilton's report on manufacturers was introduced, uh, the Congress immediately shelved it because it was a national industrial policy. And that was just not what was understood by the government. Well,
2: I'm not going to um, be pushed into the position of defending the court's very expansive commerce clause uh, cases. Um, But if you want to play devil's advocate, the question becomes what happens when you no longer have the isolated uh, local economies of the 18th century? What happens when you have an integrated national economy? You know, it's uh, depending how you understand what the what the proper test is. It could apply very differently in uh, in a highly integrated economy. I don't I don't think it should reach the cats of uh, the cats of Key West.
1: May I add that perhaps the privileges or immunities clause and the Ninth Amendment should be updated to reflect uh, a, a lawless government that pays no heed whatsoever to constitutionally enumerated powers? Perhaps the whole Constitution should be updated, including the power-limiting provisions.
2: Well, uh, you use the term "updating." Um, I, I don't think that I'm talking about updating. I mean, if at least by updating you mean uh, changing the meaning of. We all understand. Say the Fourth Amendment applies to 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 new technologies. Um, the Ninth Amendment. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what. I'm mean, glad you see, see there may be some need for updating it, but but uh, if, to, to get the to get the uh, ends you want. But it's a rule of construction about other provisions in the Constitution. Uh, it has to be twisted and strained to somehow become some sort of font of uh, judicially invented rights, uh, and. Again, from an originalist perspective, I, I couldn't find, by the way, the page in here in which you embraced originalism. I tr- tried, but from an originalist perspective, the question is, what were the privileges and immunities um, that that the Fourteenth Amendment was um, was meant to to protect, or more precisely, what was the original meaning uh, of that phrase? And you don't look to that. Um, I mean, to, f- to answer that question, you don't ask yourself what would be useful to have around today. You you engaged in the originalist inquiry
0: Um, you asked uh, well never mind next question Uh, way up in the back there please yes you asked uh, what about uh, the um, when you get a more complex economy uh, does the commerce power expand Uh, what you do then is you read Richard Epstein's book simple rules for a complex world Uh, in which he shows that that that's exactly when you want to have decisions made closer to the uh, uh, Closer to the ground the last thing you want is to turn it over to Washington or Moscow
2: I'm sure
3: that on policy grounds. I would completely agree
0: good Uh, All right up up there. Please identify yourself.
3: Uh, My name is Samar Chatterjee uh, from Washington DC I it's interesting to have uh, mr neely's presentation i guess to put our legal system in perspective because we hear so much propaganda that this is one of the american legal system or justice system is one of the best in the world and all that but i i studied environmental law in 1971 and 72 at the university of north carolina chapel hill and my impression was as an environmental engineer when I learned that that it was the American legal system works like uh, russian roulette you know basically <laughs> you know you keep triggering and different uh, results happen um and uh, i i i think that's what mr neely is saying that uh, we we uh, either we do ju- judicial activism and the wrong things and we do judicial pa- uh, uh, pacifism and the wrong uh, way, so all put together, all the results are wrong, and yet we c- claim that it is a great system. Now, the question that I have is, and also you 're not the first one i I, I understand another well known lawyer who wrote presumed in innocent sent, said about our criminal law that with American criminal law, life is uh, wi- without American criminal law, life is impossible. With it, it's nearly impossible. So, given that we've got so much wrong results come out of it, what can we do? Should we scrap the whole thing, start again? No, not at all.
1: We have the best constitution that has ever been written and we have the best idea that has ever been embraced by any society, which is the rule of law. Uh, neither of those things, um, in my opinion, are themselves threatened um, in their substance. What is threatened is the judiciary's willingness to embrace both. Uh, I, I want to sort of take slight issue with, with, with and I don't know if this, you meant for this to be a premise, I don't see our judicial system as being like Russian roulette, because that suggests a randomness. Instead. Reflexive judicial restraint is a learned behavior. It is an ethic. It is an approach to doing constitutional law that is deliberate and that has been the operating framework of the US Supreme Court and, by extension, the lower courts for the last 75 years. So let's not let them off the hook by suggesting that it's some random process. Now, the second point to make is there are some wonderful judges working in the judiciary. I'm not sure if it would be helpful for them to, for me to name them or not, but I'll name one. Judge Diane Sykes on the Seventh Circuit is one of the most engaged judges in the country that I know of. She has some wonderful opinions in which she re- rejects. You want to talk about flimflam? Watch the city of Chicago argue a case in the Supreme Court sometime, whether it's recording police officers in public or banning uh, uh, gun ranges, uh, which is a case Izzel, that Allen litigated. That's flim and Judge Diane Sykes is having none of it. Now, what we need, what we need, is more judges, like Diane Sykes and others, who I could name but won't, um, in case I get them in trouble, uh, on the Supreme Court, to actually lay down a marker and say, uh, we're not going to be doing this kind of make-believe judging uh, that has been going on for 75 years. We're going to hold the government to the same standards as we would any other litigant in terms of truth and evidence. I want to uh, just very quickly, sort of on a point of personal privilege, say one thing. I was not suggesting, Ed, that the Constitution be updated in the sense that its meaning be changed. Instead, I was saying update in the sense of even though they didn't have eugenics back in the 18th century, we do now, and it is important to have a theory of the matter about whether the Constitution applies to eugenics or using your iPhone to record a police officer beating the hell out of a handcuffed suspect, uh, which uh, bizarrely, Judge Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit doesn't think the Constitution protects. Judge Diane Sykes does, and she's right, and he's wrong. And that's the difference between judicial engagement and judicial abdication.
2: Well, I'm I'm delighted to um, both agree with uh, Clark that Judge Sykes is uh, an excellent judge, and agree with him as well that Judge Posner uh, is another mess. Um, uh, I've had occasion to write about uh, Judge Posner's uh, Wild irrationality, uh, uh, quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I will not be. Uh, uh, I'm sure he sometimes he gets things right, but um, unfortunately, he's not uh, one tenth as smart as he thinks he is. And so, um, that's a real danger with judges. On the, on the uh, question of uh, rule of law, I am much more concerned than Clark is about what's happening to the rule of law in this country. It's uh, happening, I think, uh, through the courts, through constitutional interpretation that that just makes things up and and ignores rights as well. It's also happening through the executive branch, through this uh, executive dispensation from laws. I mean, Obamacare is a prime example, but there are plenty of others as well. So, uh, I mean, the idea that... I mean, many people think, think in order to succeed in this country in business, they're going to have to have pals in Washington rather than come up with a, pro- a good product, serve their customers well. Uh, when you think that you, you really need to curry favor with people, people in power, the rule of law is in jeopardy. And I'm afraid that's uh, increasingly the case uh, in this country.
0: One more question uh, right up there, and we'll get Wally as the last question. Hi, Andrew Hopkins, George Mason, Law Students for Liberty. Uh, The conversation has been a lot about um, the courts as they are oriented towards the political branches. I'm curious if the idea of judicial restraint and engagement has any implications for the doctrine of stare decisis.
1: Well, sure. I mean, the doctrine of stare decisis is the idea that courts should not lightly overrule precedent uh, because we want a certain consistency and predictability in in the rule of law, and we don't want courts changing the rules of the game all the time. Now, in some tension with that, and then that's a value, there's no doubt about it, but in some tension with that is a question uh, of of what do you do when the court has obviously gotten something wrong, as the Supreme Court obviously did in the Kelo case, and as it obviously did in the Obamacare case. Do you uh, relentlessly cling to precedent just because stare decisis is, uh, in some ways, a useful principle? Or does there come a point at which you say that a particular decision is so obviously wrong and so harmful to the doctrine of constitutionally limited government and the rule of law that it outweighs any utility that stare decisis might have. And throughout the history of this country, that has been the way uh, that courts have handled that problem, that they respect the rule of law, they respect precedent, when it's sort of within certain bounds, but if a decision is sufficiently obviously wrong, and there's plenty of them (laughs) that we've gotten in the last five or ten years, well, last 75 years, Roger. um, They should be overruled, and they should be overruled without hesitation or sentimentality, because they are inimical to the interests of this country, which was founded on the principle of limited government and liberty.
2: I think if I could, very briefly, I think I'm even uh, less deferential to wrong precedent than Clark is, and I think there's a mechanism I'd love to see the Court develop for how to overrule the most entrenched precedent without disruption. I think it'd be akin to an exercise of equitable powers, where the court would decide. Um, you know, take an extreme case. I'm not saying that paper money is unconstitutional, but let's say, let's say, let's say uh, the court were to, to come to that conclusion. We rule today that paper money is unconstitutional. We give, we we recognize that the political process might want to adapt to this decision. We're going to stay our ruling for a period of X years. Get a constitutional amendment. In other words, if there's that back and forth. If there's a possibility of saying, okay, here's a ruling that would be disruptive. If it's really that disruptive, I realize the amendment process is difficult to, to, to make work. The court can always extend its deadline even further. But I'd love to see the Sup- uh, Supreme Court decision-making get closer in line with what the Constitution means. And one way to do that is to trigger, uh, uh, provide a real incentive for constitutional amendments. that that um, you know, might embrace um, aspects of um, the court decisions that, that, that are wrong, but might thereby make them right, if you understand um, my point here.
0: It's a great way to handle Social Security, isn't it? Sure. Uh, Wally, did you want to? Yeah. No, okay. All right, then uh, we're, let's uh, have lunch now upstairs. Um, please let's also have a good round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>